0: But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Bow your heads with me, if you would, for a second. Father, we thank you and ask that as your word is opened that your spirit would do his work to give us understanding according to the truth. We ask that we might hear and not quench the work of the spirit, that we would be open to respond to your word in the way that you would lead us to respond. And we thank you for the freedom to gather and to speak these words and to consider what you would have us learn about you today. In Christ's name, amen. My wife, who is very thoughtful and wise, suggested back at Christmas time that we be intentional about this year, 2022, and that we each within our family have a theme, something that we thought about, perhaps a word, perhaps a phrase, something that we focused and meditated on that would guide our thoughts and guide our purpose, guide the way that we Interacted with one another guide the way that we read the word of God and talked about it. Something to kind of make life a little bit more intentional. Okay, We lived through 2020 and part of 2021. And we know that when things disappeared, intention kind of felt like it fell off a bit too. And so in her wisdom, she suggested, let's be intentional about this year. And so we, uh, we did this fun thing where we made these. I hate to call it a bracelet because that does not sound manly, but we made these uh, things that we imprinted letters on and we were we're wearing them. I'm wearing mine. I don't know if anybody else in my family. Thank you. Okay, so um, mine, if you see it, it says it has two words on it. It says be wise. And, you know, I'm 45 years old. Um, I've lived a good bit of life. I've studied a good bit of scripture. Um, but I don't for a minute think that I've got things figured out when it comes to wisdom. And uh, I thought, well, I'm going to decide. I, I decided that I want my focus. What I would like to focus on this year intentionally is the idea of what it means to be wise and take it to a different level and perhaps move laterally away from, you know, the standard biblical definition. And I had no idea what I was getting into. Okay, so for me, I decided instead of like reading through the Proverbs every day, I'm going to focus primarily on the book of James. Now, James is kind of seen as the book of wisdom in the New Testament. Um, there's wisdom everywhere in the New Testament, FYI, but James goes out of his way as a writer to talk about wisdom, and so intentionally, I've been listening to the book read, uh, which the, the fun you can have with technology while I drive, I, I listen to things. And one of the things that I listen to multiple times a week is reading through the book of James. And um, what happens when you do something like that <clears throat> is that God ordains an opportunity for you to have to talk about it publicly. So that is exactly what happened. Philip was like, hey, I'd like you to preach. And I was like, well, I know what I'm going to be talking about because it's exactly what God's been hammering me with here this year so far. So today I'm going to share that with you, so together we can all feel like we have our feet stepped on. Um, I'm going to begin looking at this passage with a little bit of a history lesson. In the year 63 BC, the Roman general Pompey sieged Jerusalem. And his siege, bloody siege of Jerusalem, ended an internal power struggle that had been going on amongst those who called themselves small L leaders. Along with it went Jewish independence, because in doing so, he flexed Roman control over the entire region. Several years later, in 37 BC, Herod the Great, aided by Mark Antony's forces, also sieged Jerusalem, this time consolidating power for himself and taking the throne of Judea. His taxes would cripple the Jewish people and drove enormous amounts of farmers out of business. The process of cutting away Judean territory that Pompey had started and forcing poor Jewish people from their land was exacerbated fivefold under Herod the Great's reign of terror. During the first century AD, many of these Jewish peasants found themselves in a position where they could either find work as tenants under feudal lords, or they could become landless day laborers in the marketplaces, Or they could literally go find a new place to live, be dispersed to other areas. Resentment against wealthy landlords was growing. The wealthy landlords, of course, were busy taking care of themselves. They employed hit squads to ensure that they received all the promised goods and payments that they were due from customers and tenants alike, They lived in the upper section of the cities in Jerusalem and other cities of the area, while the poor were forced to gather in the lower sections downwind of the sewers. This spread until it reached into even the religious system. The aristocratic priests would begin to use their influence to withhold tithe income from poorer priests. And suddenly we had the beginnings of class warfare. This brought religion itself into the tension. Meanwhile, back in Rome, grade shortages are leading to rioting amongst the peasants and poor class. Social and economic tensions, not just in Rome, but also in Judea are barely being contained by the Roman forces. The Jewish aristocracy is pursuing peace with Rome trying to smooth things over by way of pragmatic politics that they will come out ahead in the end. And that has made them a focus of hatred for the rapidly expanding resistance group that believes that God alone should rule the land. Outbreaks of violence are going to eventually culminate in full-fledged rebellion, complete with massacre of priests, rich and poor openly fighting each other in the streets of Jerusalem, and the strong iron fist of the Roman government smashing down to end all of it. Not just once, but twice. It's in the midst of this bubbling but not yet overflowing cauldron that James writes this letter. And in this letter he says some formidable things like, Consider it all joy when you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. He says, let every person be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Who is this guy, James? What do we know about him? Well, he goes by the title of James the Just, He is, in fact, the brother or half-brother of Jesus, and he is the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He is held in high esteem by the people of Jerusalem and by Jews who have dispersed from the area. He has taken a strong stand against the powerful aristocratic priesthood, so much so that when the Roman procurator, sorry, governor of the area dies, In 62, the high priest will take it upon himself to execute James. The new governor who walks into the situation will be hit with the initial public outcry of what has happened and will literally remove the high priest from office for doing what he did. This history leads us to an early date for the letter. We know that he dies in 62. We know that he doesn't deal with what comes out of the Jerusalem Council, which happens years earlier. And that gives us an understanding of perhaps that this letter was written quite early on. Some may speculate even the first New Testament letter written in terms of chronological order. It is, in fact, an interesting letter. To a lot of people, it looks like a choppy, disjointed mishmash of Wisdom statements, kind of like, respectfully, you get in the Proverbs, where there's no clear theme that rolls from one verse to the next, but you just kind of jump around from topic to topic. I'm going to disagree a little bit this morning, and I'm going to pull us back to the context, the historical context. I believe it helps us to set an understanding of how to recognize the flow of argument through the book. I am not going to go through the whole book for you. I will leave that up to you. In fact, I would suggest it's a pretty wonderful book. Wisdom, in fact, is a central theme. Wisdom literature, distinctives and devices, rhetorical devices are used all throughout the book. I'm not going to explain them. I don't understand half of them myself, but they're there, not in English, but in the original language in which they were written, both classical Greek and also hearkening back to the origin of the Hebrew roots. The letter itself reads more like an essay or a sermon and less like a personal letter. And that's fine because he had much to say to those that were no longer in Jerusalem but had been scattered because of the circumstances. It's meant to be read to and appreciated by a large body of recipients. And it carries great weight as it comes from a respected leader like James. That being said, let's turn our attention back to James chapter three, picking up in verse 13, which I'm going to identify as the central purpose passage of the letter, ironically found in the geographical center of the letter. Now, James three thirteen says, who is wise and understanding among you by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. I'm going to sit here and talk about this idea of the meekness of wisdom, because when I looked this up, I was very surprised by what I read. We live in a culture today that doesn't necessarily embrace the concept of meekness. But I think the issue is we don't embrace what we have imposed on the concept of meekness and made it within our own understanding. Because if we go back to the biblical source and we look at what's trying to be communicated, this idea of meekness is an incredible concept. This idea of meekness is an interwoven grace of the soul that is expressed primarily toward God, where we accept his dealings with us as good and right. That's an incredibly fancy way of saying contentment and joy and peace. Meekness is about recognizing that how God has chosen to treat me is in fact right and good. And I want you to stop for a minute and consider not how that applies to you right now, but how that applied to James's audience. Who were they? What were they going through? Economic, financial instability or ruin political, on the wrong side of where the power was politically. And James makes this argument central to his entire letter that if you're going to be wise and demonstrate understanding, the first concept you have to come to grips with is the fact that the way God has chosen to deal with you is in fact right and good. Kind of puts the very beginning back in context, consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Now it's not enough to just say meekness. James says who is wise and understanding among you by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. What exactly is wisdom? If I threw that out and asked for answers like I did to, some of the people in my family, um, I bet you could capture some of the foundational concepts of wisdom. I remember when I studied this a long time ago, somebody summarized the idea of wisdom biblically as knowing the right thing to do and doing it. They were very clear to make sure that I understood that wisdom wasn't just Knowledge. It wasn't just understanding. It wasn't just I have information in my brain, but it was the actual practical application of that and the ability to put it into practice. Well, that's true. Wisdom, fancy statement, a divine gift of the ability to act rightly in one's relationship with God. It's a divine gift. An ability to act right in my relationship with God. It's not brilliance. It's not education. It's not training. It's the possession of a God-given ability and putting that God-given ability to use. So what does James say? Well, he says, who is wise and understanding among you? Who demonstrates that they have a God-given ability that puts into action an understanding of what should be done as it relates to your relationship with God. Well, in good conduct and in works, there's a demonstration of this meekness of wisdom, this beautiful blending of the idea of contentment, how God has chosen to act in my life is both right and good because he has given me the ability to rightly respond to him, to live properly in relationship with him. Contrast verse 14, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This word that's translated jealousy is an interesting one. Literally in the Greek, it's Zelos, where the word zealot comes from. And the word means to be hot. Now, in this context, he paints jealousy in a negative light. And he uses the word bitter to do it. If you have bitter jealousy in your heart and selfish ambition. But within the classical Greek world, the concept of jealousy was not necessarily seen as a negative thing. In fact, it was a positive thing. Because what it meant was that you were on a journey. And the journey looks something like this. I see that which is excellent in the life of someone else. And I recognize that I don't have it. And because of that reality, I grieve. And in order to make up for the deficiency that is in myself, I'm going to go one of two ways. I'm going to attempt to manufacture it in and of and through myself. But we know where that's going to lead. Because I can't manufacture the ability to live rightly with God myself. Wisdom is a gift that's understood and put into practice through meekness. And so the journey diverges into two paths here. How am I going to deal with the reality that that which is excellent, which I see in others, I do not have myself. Will I bow the knee to God? Will I call upon him to give me what is needed and what I am missing Or will I attempt to manufacture it myself in a way that I think that I can put a better plan together? Well, when it comes to bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, obviously the path that's been taken is path number two. I'm going to put together a plan that says, I know what I should do here, and I'm going to figure it out. And the tragedy is that that plan ends with this reality. I make war upon the good That I see in others. This is the end result of bitter jealousy. I recognize excellence. I see that it's not in me. I grieve. But then I decide I'm going to pursue excellence by my means. And in the wisdom of myself. And in doing so, I make war against that good that I see in others. And the only resulting. Process that this is going to bring us to is conflict and strife. There is no way. There's no way around that. And so when James says, do not boast and be false to the truth, what he's saying to his readers is this. If you don't have what you see that is excellent. Then you'd better get on your knees. You'd better acknowledge your need for wisdom. Early in the book, he says, if any of you lack wisdom, what should you do? Ask God. Why? Because he gives generously to all without finding fault. And in case you needed to be reminded of that, let me hit you with what happens when you walk down the wrong path towards bitter jealousy. Acknowledge my need for wisdom. Call out to God for this divine gift. And in meekness. Inform myself every day that the way that God has decided to treat me is in fact right and good. Now, without belaboring the journey down the wrong path, James also says that this wisdom, boasting, being false in the truth, attempting to manufacture the good that I see in others in a way that is outside of God's plan of wisdom, this path is in fact Earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. And what he's doing there is he's stacking levels. It's getting worse. Okay? Earthly, in that it's temporary and bound for destruction. Unspiritual, in that it is lacking connection with God. And demonic, and the whole reason I brought, took a minute to talk about these three is because of this concept of demonic. The Jewish people had this very interesting spiritual perspective. They understood that in a realm around them that was not necessarily able to be seen. They were surrounded by hordes of the demonic host. If you think about it, it's it's not that crazy that they would think this way. They were, in fact, protected by God, named by the name of God, a chosen people. And as they found their way in the world, they imagined or saw themselves as surrounded by a horde of the demonic host. And so when James says this kind of wisdom is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic, what he's saying is, by extension, you have now joined the horde of demonic hosts. You are, by extension, doing their work. You have turned your back on what you've been called to, named as the people of God, and are doing the work of the demonic horde. Not surprisingly, as a result... Verse 15, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above, earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. There is no other result. This is the natural result of refusing to acknowledge my need for God's divine gift of wisdom. But the wisdom from above, beautiful contrasts in the book of James, verse 17 But the wisdom from above is first of all pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. James identifies the source of this wisdom. This is the wisdom that is from above. And in saying that, what he's saying is that God is the source. And this wisdom is his gift, his blessing. The divine gift to act rightly in my relationship with God puts into action, put into action with an interwoven contentment that causes me to trust God's actions as right and good. What's that going to look like? Well, peace, gentleness, reasonableness, mercy, impartiality, sincerity. Why? Because it is pure. It is from God, a gift from God. It is enacted through the, as we know, the beautiful, blessed working of the Holy Spirit to change us from the inside out, giving us a new perspective that says not My life is treacherous. Why has God dealt with me in this way? And I am angry and will find a way around it. But instead, contentment to say that the way God has chosen to treat me is, in fact, right and good. That attitude, that course of action leads us to imagine that the fruit of the spirit being demonstrated in the way that we live. And he uses the concept of a harvest of righteousness, because if we're producing fruit, at some point there is a harvest. And the harvest itself here is a harvest of righteousness. It's the very manifestation of the living God within me, demonstrating the reality of God's gift of wisdom. Righteousness is an interesting concept. Um, I know that we kind of make it simple by talking about this idea of complete right standing with God. There is a requirement, a measure, and that requirement or measure has been completely met in Christ. Okay, These these are all the concepts that are wrapped up in the idea of righteousness, and it's a heavy topic. And that idea, conformity to the commands of God, the righteousness that belongs to God through Christ... When we start talking about righteousness, the most important thing that we can understand is I can't manufacture it on my own. So this bitter jealousy concept, walking these two paths, one path says, I'm going to try to find a way to manufacture something on my own. And we already know where that leads. Its ultimate end is strife and conflict. But the other side says that I recognize the other path is a path of righteousness, which says that I recognize that my right standing and my ability to be right with God exists only in the blessed gift of Christ himself. The sacrifice of Christ, the indwelling Christ, this gift of wisdom that allows me in meekness to say I can change my perspective due to the work of God and the spirit within me, and I can live in a way that is different. I can demonstrate peace, gentleness, reasonableness, mercy, impartiality, sincerity, because it is pure. Righteousness is God's. It is not mine. And all of it results in this concept of peace, harmonious welfare between God and man and man and man. So to summarize I am called to reject a system in which I look at deficiencies and say, I will manufacture a way, figure out how to make myself right. And instead, we're called to embrace the reality that the way that God has chosen to deal with us is, in fact, right and good. You know, oftentimes we are tempted to use our feelings to act our way to to move into a new set of actions. We feel our way into a new set of actions. This wisdom concept demands that we act our way into a new set of feelings, that we act based on the truth that God is right and good in the way that he has dealt with me. So at this time, I'm going to say stop and let's remember the context, the history lesson. These dispersed Jewish Christians who found themselves on the wrong end of everything economic, everything political, every kind of power politic, these dispersed Jewish Christians are literally being told, reject fixing this. Reject trying to find power in yourself. And you know, that's a big deal, because what's going on at this time? What's going on is the zealots are putting together a movement that will ultimately end in a failed revolution attempt. And there are a lot of Jewish people who are considering what their role might be in that revolution. And James makes it pretty clear to them that that is not the path. Without so much coming out and saying it, he makes it very clear to them that they need to look at the way God has chosen to deal with them and recognize that it is right and it is good. He has a lot to say about the rich and what the rich do and how the rich take advantage of and how these people should respond to the rich and how they should try to keep from being then like them themselves. I'll let you look that up. We're not handling the whole book today. So then we ask this question. All right. There's your central concept. Who's wise and understanding among you. I understand the weakness, the meekness and the wisdom concept fleshed together. I understand rejecting the path That leads to bitter jealousy. But what's that going to look like in real life? Allow me to take you back to James chapter 1. And let's look at verses 19 through 21. This will be our focus point. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. As an Italian, I understand a little bit about the uh, opposite of quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Am I right? And what I found to be very interesting was when I did a little bit of a deep dive into these concepts, I was actually very surprised to see that there's something here that's a little bit bigger than what I thought it initially was. Quick to listen means you have to be ready. There's intentionality and you have to be ready. Slow to speak. What's interesting is that the word there for speak means to simply utter words. Not necessarily seen in a positive way or a negative way. It's literally just you opened your mouth and you started speaking. We ought to be slow to do that. And then thirdly, slow to anger. Now, I don't know what it is, maybe my background, but I imagine that this word, and I have for years and years and years, I imagine that this concept of slow to anger was a concept that was informing me That my emotional response to a situation should not be an emotional response to a situation. But instead, I should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Imagine my surprise in studying and realizing that that is not at all what is meant by this concept of anger. In fact, it is a diametrically different. I won't say opposite. That's wrong. It is a different concept altogether. Okay, This word for anger is rooted in the word for coveting and desiring. This word for anger is rooted in the concept of coveting and desiring. Can you put together in your own mind a connection between coveting, desiring, and anger? Because I can. This is wrath as a state of mind. In fact, it's described by some as Desire with grief. I desire something with grief. This, for a man, a human being, is what builds when we are not getting what we think we deserve, when we're not getting what we want, when we live in frustration. And by extension, when we refuse to consider that the way that God is treating us is in fact right and good. This is not the word for anger that means wrath as indignation. This is not the word for anger that means wrath as impetuous or passionate response. That is in fact a different concept. This is the word for anger that means wrath as a state of mind, something that I have built and built and built and built upon and built upon and built upon because I am not getting what I think I deserve. I'm not getting what I want. And so this precipice of wrath is building inside of me. And boy, it's going to show its ugly head when something hits something. That's for sure. This kind of anger leads to other derivatives, the concept of burning with anger, the concept of rage, the concept of provoking to wrath. This is deep-seated anger that is rooted in discontent, and it's no shock whatsoever that James says this cannot lead to righteousness. When at the deepest part of my heart, I am discontent with what God has done for me. And I'm actively saying you are not treating me in a way that is right and good. There is no way that righteousness can come about as a result of that. I am pursuing bitter jealousy. And so what are we called to do? Put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. Verse 21. Put away means to renounce or lay aside, to lay something down, to literally let it go. And what we're called to renounce or lay aside and lay down and let go is every kind of moral filth. So our first idea there is every kind of moral filth. And the second is the overflowing evil of the mind. And what is the connection between those two? When I decide that I'm going to focus on what I don't have and get angry about it and choose to accuse God of treating me in a way that is unfair. It's not just going to be in my mind. It's going to overflow in ways that are described as moral filth. Because I'm going to justify my actions I'm going to say, if God had only done this for me, then I wouldn't have to do this. And brother, that path of justification is a path that takes us to all sorts of moral filth. So put away every kind of moral filth and the overflowing evil of the mind. And instead receive, James says, with meekness, the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Again, here comes the meekness concept this beautiful woven grace in my soul that allows me to live with great contentment because I believe that God is treating me in a way that is right and good. Receive the implanted word, the literal revelation of God placed inside of me by God himself, which the Holy Spirit will use to bring life, And to change me from the inside out. So that instead of just saying, yes, I think God is treating me in a way that is right and good. I can live and say, I know that God is treating me in a way that is right and good. And, you know, this concept of God's law, God's word being written inside of us goes way, way back to some of the oldest passages in the Old Testament. God talking about writing his law, writing his word upon our hearts. Literally from the inside out, we change. So, I took this central concept of what does it mean, wisdom from above, and I applied it to one lesson from chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Put away every kind of moral filth and the overflowing evil of the mind and receive with weakness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. That beautiful already, not yet. That beautiful, I am saved, I am being saved, and I look forward to the day when I am saved. And that's just three, four verses. There's an entire book. An entire book of beautiful wisdom to remind us and to call us to the reality of Wisdom is a gift from God, and in meekness, I learned this valuable lesson and have impressed upon my heart that God is treating me in a way that is good and is right. And I choose to resist bitter jealousy and live in a way that demonstrates peace. I feel like I would be wrong to not address the fact, as a Reformed congregation, that one of our own had things to say about this letter that we might be highly concerned about. Martin Luther was not a fan of the book of James. He had some strong words for it and basically the idea that it shouldn't be included in scripture. And the reason for that was because of context. Martin Luther, as a reformer during the time period that he lived, was reacting to the church's teaching that salvation was based on on a process where the actions of man could be infused with the grace of God to a point where man would now be right with God. He was convinced in his study of Scripture that salvation is in fact a work of God and not a work of man. And to do anything to call it a work of man would be to lead from the truth back to what is false and wrong. And so when James writes... Can faith without works save someone? Martin Luther said, you better believe it can. And if brother, if you go trying to say that it can't, we're cutting this book out of the Bible. Context drove him to see something in relation to the time and place in which he stood for the truth. But you know what? Context drove James to say exactly what he said. Because James is living in a different situation. And for James, the idea is this. You are named by the name of God as Jewish believers who have found yourself at the bottom of every social, political power standing that you can possibly be in. And your attempt to simply say, well, I've got wisdom from God and I've received blessing from God. But to not demonstrate that through a perspective on life and a soul commitment that says God is in fact treating me in a way that is good and right and to demonstrate that in a method of peace as opposed to attempting to take the reins and overthrow my situation as though I know better than God would be ultimate foolishness and failure. According to James, you can't just say it. You've got to live it. The demonstration of righteousness must be seen and not just said. And so you know what? The beautiful thing at the end of the day is context can lead us to some interesting places. But brother, you better get right with the reality of who God is and my need for him. We sang a song before we moved into looking at scripture together. And in the song, we declared that God is with us in the fire and the flood because he's faithful forever and perfect in love. James would absolutely agree with that. Many of his people have experienced the fire and the flood. Us today, not really in the same way. But the reality is, I encourage you to consider the perspective and the context of James, of his readers, and to be challenged with the reality of what will the meekness of wisdom look like in my life? Will I reject bitter jealousy? Will I embrace peace? And will I not allow myself to build a foundation of anger upon the things that I feel like I'm being left out of? The things that I'm missing, the things that I'm not getting that I feel like I should. Will I reject building that edifice of anger, which will tear me apart and lead to conflict and destruction? Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. It is perfect. It is timely. It is living and life-giving. And you are a merciful, powerful God. You treat us in a way that is right and is good. We don't understand everything. But help us, Father, to understand that truth. Help us to stand by that truth, though our emotions may try to take us elsewhere. Help us to be firmly rooted on the reality of righteousness, that it's only in the righteousness of Christ, your own righteousness, that I can be right with you. Cause me, Father, to... Recognize and reject the path towards bitter jealousy. Cause me to recognize and reject the path of anger. The path that says, I'm wrong. God is wrong. Others are wrong for me not getting what I deserve and what I want. Father, we can't do that on our own. We need you. And we ask that you would do great work in us, that we would submit ourselves to you, that we would not be content to just do what we usually do. But, Father, that you would bring to mind and you would challenge us. You would convict our heart. You would point out what needs to be changed. You would point out the ways in which we are not embracing the meekness of wisdom and we are going the path of bitter jealousy towards anger and dissension, and strife, and conflict. You are great and greatly to be praised. Cause us to be people of praise. Regardless of our circumstances, may we say that our God is great, and that we are committed to following his Son, Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.